Hi everyone. It's a little late right now. It's almost 10 and I don't want to disturb my neighbors. So I will not be playing guitar, but I'm still going to sing my theme song for you. I'm just going to... The guitar carries a little more than my voice. It pierces these walls more than my voice. So let's do some acapella, all right? One, two, three. Can you hear it with your ears? Can you see it with your eyes? Can you feel it wiggling between your quivering thighs? That thing, that thing, ooh, that thing thing with James. Once every millennium something will come along. When you feel it, you will know it cause it's coming on strong. That thing, that thing, oh yeah. That thing with James. That's right, baby. Mm. Sit back, relax, deep breaths. No stress, let me come inside your mouth. I meant to say mind, I promise you it won't take long. The change will happen soon. I really meant to say mouth. You will feel something so special growing deep within you. That thing, that thing. That thing with James, that thing. That thing, that thing with James, that's me. Hi, welcome to episode 16 of That Thing with James J. Asher II. That's me. This is a special episode because it's another solo episode. I had a couple guests fall through this week, and that's okay. It got pretty rainy this week. It was pretty rainy last week, too, but it got real rainy this week. And the past couple days have been a little chilly. And that's kind of the, the cold and the wind and the wetness has kind of kicked up the mold. And my apartment's got a mold problem, and there's a lot of mold in this Austin area anyway. So, you know, feeling a little... uh moldy but that's all cool man sometimes it's sometimes you get a little moldy and that's okay so before we get into the fun let me take care of a little bit of business if you uh are, are new to this show welcome if you enjoy it please uh for those of you watching the youtube channel please hit the subscribe button and like and comment and for anyone listening or watching not just the YouTube YouTubers. Um, tell your friends if you think they'd be into this sort of thing. Tell them about it. Spread the love. Spread that thing. Let the seed enter their minds. The seed of that thing. Let my seed enter them. Let my creative juices flow into their ears. Penetrate their spirit. Let us become one. In, in this magical experience that is that thing what is that thing this thing isn't that cool it's all the thing man it's a thing yeah it's a thing so if if uh you want to check me out on social media you can find me on instagram and twitter at james j asher if you want to visit my website go to jamesjasher.com j-a-m-e-s J-A-S-H-E-R dot com. All one thing. And, uh, and all this stuff's going to be in the description. I've got links in the description. If you don't know how to spell James J. Asher or at James J. Asher, check out the description. It'll be written there. I, I haven't figured out the video editing skills for those of you watching to like type it out yet. Not that I'm unable to figure it out. I'm just, uh, I, I can't be fucked right now. No, for no particular reason. I just haven't done it yet. Um, and if you want to help support the show, uh, you can become a monthly contributor uh, at my Patreon. Patreon.com slash that thing with James. That will be in the description as well for the video and the audio version of this episode. I've got, um, you can give a contribution as low as $1 or up to 
uh, $3,000. I've set different tiers. Patreon.com slash that thing with James. Your contribution will help me um, create more and better content and just keep this show going. Get more lights, better equipment, la 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 la. That's all the business. Business is done. Um, now, I need to apologize to one of my homeboys, my my dear, loyal fan of the show, who also happens to be a dear friend of mine, Jaime. Jaime, my friend, I am sorry. I have, I received an email from you at my, at my email account for this podcast. For those of you, if you want to send me an email, uh, email me at thatthingwithjames at gmail.com that thing with james at gmail.com and you can send in just you know send me your love um you can send me questions you can send me musings that you've had like jaime has which i'm about to get into or if you need some advice i can give you some advice i can't guarantee that it will be good advice but i'll guarantee it'll be entertaining advice and that's what this show's about entertainment speaking of entertainment I, I feel like I've been so distracted by entertainment that I, I completely missed the email that I got from Jaime. Dude, bro, I'm sorry. I missed your email from, what, April 24th, four days after 420. I missed it. I must have been stoned since then. Uh, and also just um, distracted. I, I didn't even see the email to like, you know, just before the last episode that I did, and I still didn't answer the email, and uh, because I, I I had a guest and it slipped my mind, so I'm sorry. Let's let me make it up to you by first plugging your shit, bro. You can check out Jaime's t-shirts that he makes. They're really cool. Belief in art shirts. Belief in art shirts. Check it out. They're on Facebook, and I think. I just saw them on Instagram. Either that's new or I'm new to it, but you can check them out. Belief in Art Shirts, based out of Denver. He just came out with a sweet new shirt saying uh, something about mushrooms. I forget what it was. I saw it earlier today, right after I woke up, because one of the first things I do is probably the most unhealthy thing you can do short of uh, smoking a cigarette first thing in the morning, and that would be checking social media. It's a bad habit but it's a habit. Um, regardless, I found some cool shit because Jaime uploaded a new shirt in honor of the Denver vote. They just, the city of Denver voted by, they won by, I think I, it was like a thousand or two thousand. It, it won by a um, not insubstantial margin. It voted, the city voted to decriminalize not legalize, but decriminalize psilocybin mushrooms. So Denver, what a watershed moment. Uh, go, you guys. You're my OG hometown. I'm from Denver. I'm from the suburbs of Denver. First six years of my life, I grew up in a suburb of Lakewood. But, you know, it's all part of the Denver metroplex. So I consider, you know, Denver, my OG hood, you voted right. Uh, this is a hopefully a momentous moment for human beings. Hopefully, um, we're getting closer to seeing some sort of uh, renaissance in pharmaceutical, medical, scientific research. If something like psilocybin mushrooms were taken off of schedule one narcotic uh, categorization. I think it's categorized as schedule one. I could be mistaken, but if it is, and I think it is scheduled schedule as a schedule one narcotic, uh, that means that scientists aren't able to do research and run tests on things on psilocybin mushrooms. And they're, I feel like they're missing out because of that restriction they are missing out on a field of research that is showing some really interesting results. 
a few, maybe two years ago, I, I read some papers about research they were doing in, I think it was Switzerland. I'm pretty sure it was Switzerland. But they were testing psilocybin magic mushrooms on people with terminal illnesses. And this was in a controlled setting. This was a true scientific uh, test, a research. So they, it was a controlled group. I'm working from memory here. They found a controlled group of people who had terminal illnesses and they had a limited time, a year, six months, two years, a few months to live. And they met with, um, you know, researchers who assessed their, um, the state of their psychology. They were, they had end of life anxieties, end of life depression, and pretty much across the board, these people were given psych, uh, psilocybin mushrooms in, in a controlled setting, um, in a lab, I'm sure maybe it wasn't like a sterile place. Maybe they had some scientists in a living room, which would be nicer for the setting for the person tripping. But they basically got these people with terminal illnesses uh, to trip and they studied them and talked them through it with a psychologist on, uh, uh, on location with them. And from what I read, pretty much across the board, a lot of these people after having gone through the psilocybin trip experience, the, the gravity of their end-of-life anxiety and depression, um, it, it didn't, I, I don't, I don't want to say that it 100% disappeared, but it substantially lowered. It brought many of these people, not all of them. I remember there were a few that didn't like it so much, but the majority of the people in this test that I read about, their anxiety and depression was substantially lowered and they had a lot more peace of mind. And then that peace of mind maintained. Eventually the the strength, the level of the anxiety and the depression did rise up again. Um, but for the most part, these people, they'd never taken any psychedelics before, but they took the mushrooms one time. Their stresses went down. Their end-of-life stresses, you know, subsided. Some for a few months, some for like a year, just off of one trip. They didn't continue taking it. They just had one trip, and for a substantial amount of time, their stress was substantially lowered and they had more peace of mind in that perspective that helped them have peace of mind to cope with the fact that, you know, they had a uh, severely limited time, uh, time uh, limitation, severely limited time limitation. They weren't going to be around much longer. Doctors told them, you know, so yeah, um, I feel like there's a lot of stuff that could help with, you know, anxiety, blah, 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 whatever. Hi, May. Let me answer your questions. I'm getting off. Focus, James. Focus. Okay. This is an email from Jaime. Uh, let's see here. Hola, James. I watched the film Waking Life over seven years ago, and it introduced me to the seven-year homo sapien cellular rejuvenation theory. If that is true, if that theory is true, why do I still have a scar or two from my childhood? Okay, Jaime. I actually, I, I know the movie you're talking about, and I think Alex Jones has a cameo in it. It's a Linkletter movie, I know that. I haven't seen it, though. Um, that's one I have not seen yet, but I know about it. And as for the seven-year rejuvenation thing, yeah, I've heard about that. I've heard about that. I didn't know it was just a theory. I just, I heard it, uh, that every seven years, every cell in your body has basically, all the cells have died off and you've produced new cells, duplicates, clones of the cells that have died off throughout your entire being, every fiber. That's what the theory says. So if that's true, I mean, that's pretty cool. 
Uh, I don't know if it's 100% true. I assumed it was true, but now you said it was a theory that you learned from the movie. So I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if it's true or not, but it's a pretty cool idea and I'm totally familiar with it. As for the scar thing, I did some moderate, moderate, I did some minimal research earlier this morning, which is to say I did a Google search of why don't scars disappear? And I looked at a couple headlines and the metadata uh, beneath the link results. So I didn't read the full things. Uh, no, I, actually, I did go into an article and I skimmed over it. So basically, your cells, your skin cells, they shed. You shed skin cells and they get replaced. And there's some kind of uh, something, something that starts with the C, some kind of liquid, juicy stuff in your cells. Some of that juicy juice that keeps your cells nice and juicy if they've got the certain sea juice they will shed but if they don't have that special sea juice you know the juice i'm talking about starts with a c ends with a mm. <laughs> if your skin cells lack that certain sea juice they won't shed and the type of skin cells that grow into scar tissue they don't have that sea juice you see, so without the sea juice, you see, they don't shed. Okay, so apparently that's what happens. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I should have maybe read a little more. Shoulda, woulda, coulda. Whatever. What to talk about? I want to talk about Catch-22. It's a book written by Joseph Heller, and I've been reading it lately. I'm trying to finish it before the show comes out. There's going to be like a Hulu original series of Catch-22 coming out, I think, next week or something on May 17th. And I'm looking forward to it because I'm a big fan of Catch-22. I'm a big fan of the movie. I saw the movie first and then the book I started reading when I was in grad school. And I got maybe just, I got, I got about a third through and I kind of put it down because I was in the middle of grad school and I was just busy studying and drinking too much and having existential crisis after existential crisis. It was one long midlife crisis at the age of 20, 22 to 24. And it didn't end there, but I was distracted. I, I was busy in grad school, so I didn't get through it. Plus, the book has a definite lull about a third of the way in, a quarter to a third of the way in. It gets real slow, real boring for like a few chapters. So I put it down. And over the past few years, I, I still remember everything that happened at the beginning, and I still had my bookmark of where I was before. And I've been reading through it a little by little. And then I found out the show was coming out. And I told myself, you know what? I want to finish the book before the show comes out. I've seen the movie several times, but I haven't finished the book yet. And I want to see the source material. I mean, I, I want to read the book. I'm the kind of person who wants to read the damn book. So I read the book. I'm reading the book. I'm almost done. I've got maybe 100 pages left here. And it's one of the best books I've ever read. It absolutely deserves the... Uh, fame that it has, the recognition that it got, the accolades that it received, the reputation it has. It's a fantastic fucking book, man. Catch-22 by Joseph Heller. If you haven't read it, let's see if there's a description on the back. Okay, here's what the back of this book says. For those of you who have no idea what Catch-22 is, Catch-22 is like no other, no other novel. It has its own rationale, its own extraordinary character. It moves back and forth from hilarity to horror. That's true. It is outrageously funny and strangely affecting. That's true as well. I was crying this morning reading it. It is totally original. 
set in the closing months of World War II in an American bomber squadron off Italy, Catch-22 is the story of a bombardier named Yossarian, who is frantic and furious because thousands of people he hasn't even met keep trying to kill him. Catch-22 is a microcosm of the 20th century world as it might look to some someone dangerously sane. It is a novel that lives and moves and grows with astonishing power and vitality, a masterpiece of our time. That's the description on the back of my book, paperback, and I agree with it completely. It is terrifying, and then turn on a dime, hilarious. It's about this guy. Yeah, he's a bomber, and he's experiencing severe... A PTSD. And he, he's sane. He thinks everyone else is insane because they're willing to go kill and risk being killed. And the whole book, it's absurd. It's absolute absurdity, which is pretty standard for any kind of really good story post-World War II. Post-World War II is when absurdist theater really took off. It's when absurdist writing really took off. Now, absurdism had been around since before World War II, but it really became the thing after World War II because you're dealing with a culture that was traumatized. The fact that we used a nuclear bomb, a true doomsday device, twice, twice, the United States used that, and uh, it was just a very traumatizing time for the world. And a lot of people, after experiencing that trauma, experiencing those horrors, became disillusioned. Truths they believed before, they kind of saw through. They saw that it was just sort of bullshit, propaganda, uh, or just straight up absurdity. They started seeing the world as an absurd place. People doing crazy things for crazy reasons, for crazy ends. For, for what? Because we're all going to die. There is no meaning. There is no intrinsic meaning to life. And this gets in on existentialism as well, which is basically starts, there's the nihilistic idea, nothing means anything. There is no meaning to life. It's transitory. We might not even exist uh, at this moment that we think we exist. We might not really exist. We might be the figments of a dream within a dream within the dream of some being within a being within a being. Um, yeah, there is no intrinsic meaning to life. However, that's not to say that there is no meaning. There can be meaning. It is the meaning that you find. It's the meaning that you create. It's the purpose you create. That's the difference between nihilism and existentialism. Nihilism says nothing means anything. Mwah. That's about it. As far as I understand it. And then existentialism says, well, yeah, nothing means anything, but you don't have to be so maudlin about it. There's, you find joy in things, so find something that brings you joy. Create your own meaning, create your own purpose for life. And this is all tied in with the idea of absurdism, where it's kind of stripping apart and examining and satirizing. It's satirizing the absurdity of people who don't understand that all these things that they're fighting for in their life, all these things that they hold so high and holy, they're not intrinsically high and holy. They do, but these people don't understand that. It's only high and holy because you make it so, because you believe it to be high and holy. The thing is not high and holy until you believe it, until you make it high and holy. And the people who feel like Yossarian, dangerously sane, start seeing all of the other quote-unquote normal people as insane because they don't see that uh, they're applying all this meaning to life. 
and they're applying all this suffering. They're experiencing all this suffering and creating all this madness, trying to perpetuate this meaning that they think is a solid, um, immutable fact. So how do I dig myself out of this hole, man? The book, it's really good, and I'm trying to finish it before the uh, show comes out, and I really enjoyed the movie, and uh, I'm going to tell you about the movie. I need to take a quick pee break. I'll be right back. Okay, I'm back. That was refreshing. Absurdity. I love absurdity. It's some of my favorite writing. It's one of the reasons I love Kurt Vonnegut so much. Again, a World War II veteran suffering the aftershocks, the post-traumatic stress of traumatic. Really, that guy, Vonnegut, experienced some dangerous trauma. And so did Joseph Heller, the writer of Catch-22. He, I believe, he was a bomber, just like the subjects in Catch-22. Kurt Vonnegut, he was taken a prisoner of war in Germany. And he he was caught in a forest. I I think he was caught in a forest, like, without a gun, alone, after a firefight. Um... The Germans caught him and took him and the rest of the prisoners of war, Americans, to a series of slaughterhouses in Dresden because they were just outside of Dresden, Dresden, Germany, the city. Before World War II, Dresden is said to have been one of the most beautiful cities in Europe, and it was a bastion, a a shining light for art. A lot of the Brechtian type theater, that Berlin 20s, 30s, cool kind of theater came out of, uh, there was a lot of that going on in, in Dresden. Also, there's a great band called the Dresden Dolls. If you haven't heard of them, check them out. Amanda Palmer, she's the voice. And uh, the drummer guy does backups on some of the songs. But Dresden Dolls, yeah. Uh, If you don't know, Bertolt Brecht was a really fucking cool playwright. I really love Bertolt Brecht. Although I would not consider his stuff uh, absurd. He's more just Brechtian. It's it's what it's described as. His his plays are described as Brechtian. Bertolt Brecht. Um, the musical cabaret, if you're familiar with that, the whole aesthetic of cabaret is based off of Brechtian theater. It just had his stuff had a cabaret kind of feel of a real noir kind of city romance and lechery and murder kind of vibe to it. And the characters on stage, they all sit on stage and, and they change uh, costumes and everything on stage and different characters. I won't get into it. I, I I could go on and on about Brechtian theater, but I won't right now. I'll leave that for you to enroll in a master's program in a theater's theater master's program, so you can learn cool shit like Brechtian theater and talking out of your loins and activating your chakras and uh, building a set, etc., etc. Anyway. Absurdism. Kurt Vonnegut, he deals a lot with absurdism in his books. Um, I always say one of the reasons I elect Kurt Vonnegut as my favorite author is that for me, he makes the most sense out of a universe out of life out of an existence that is intrinsically chaotic he makes sense out of the absurdity out of the chaos a uh, man i love kurt vonnegut and i love joseph heller's book catch 22 it's fantastic i could go on and on describing that but i don't want to because i want to catch saturday night live and it's coming on kind of soonish But the movie, I told you I was going to talk about the movie. The movie came out 
in I think maybe 77 or something. Let me check. I've, I've got the DVD. I stole it from my dad. Dad, if you're listening, I, I, I feel no remorse. I'm happy to have taken it off your hands because I guarantee I was going to watch it more than you, man. Love you. Let me check this thing real quick. Okay. Da -da, where is it? Catch it 22. Ah. Got it. Ah. Catch 22. Okay. The movie came out in 1970. And it's got a lot of people in it. It has... Um, not, not Alan Alda. That's MASH. Um, has... Art Garfunkel is in it. Art Garfunkel is in it. Uh, Bob Newhart is in it. Anthony Perkins. Martin Sheen. A young, very drunk Martin Sheen is in it. A young John Voight is in it. Orson Welles is in it. He plays General Dreedle. And the guy who plays Yossarian, his name isn't on here. What the fuck, man? Who the hell played Yossarian? I love this actor. He was in Second City, this guy. La la. Oh, Alan Arkin. That's right. Yeah. Alan Arkin plays Yossarian. I love me some Alan Arkin. If you don't know who that is, but you know about that movie, Little Miss Sunshine, Alan Arkin was the the grandpa who uh, OD'd. Yeah, that's the actor Alan Arkin. He's still alive. He's funny as hell. Great actor. One of my favorites. Largely due to Catch-22. I wasn't really conscious. I'd seen him in other movies and things before, but until Catch-22, I didn't really consciously know, oh shit, that's Alan Arkin. And yeah, he he was pretty early in Second City. He started with sketch comedy. That was his thing, man. Um, in the movie is great for a number of reasons. One that I'm continuing to realize as I read my way through Catch-22, the book, one of the things, it's, it's an amazing adaptation of the novel. They really caught the essence of the book and they're really doing a good job, good job of putting a lot of stuff in there. There, I mean, there's, stuff that's not in it because you can't fit everything from a book into a two-hour movie. I think it's like two hours long, Catch-22. Then there's a few characters. Uh, there's a Native American character that's not in it, and there's a whole thing that happens with him that's not in it, and a car wreck that happens because they all got drunk and flipped a Jeep. But for the most part... The the movie is a fantastic adaptation of the book. Uh, it catches the humor. It catches captures the horror, the absolute horror, and it gets fucking real. Shit gets real fucking real in the book, in the story, Catch-22. And it also gets just insane. It picks apart so many different things. It highlights problems with the military industrial corporate complex it it dissects how wars are just money machines they're just money schemes it's all money schemes it's not really about honor and yada 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 for the most part it's just money schemes especially for the united states war is a money scheme period it's rare that <laughs> it's anything other than a money scheme. So, yeah, there's a lot of stuff that they touch on in the book in a really accessible way. You don't even realize it because you're busy laughing. And then you finish a passage and you're like, wait a second. Oh, shit, they're talking about military industrial corporate complex. Oh, damn, you really picked that apart in a really good way that I hadn't thought of before but it makes sense blah 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 blah. that's one of the things that notably stuck out to me recently 
uh, the movie. It's an it's a very much a '70s movie. I grew up watching a lot of movies from the '70s um, and the '80s, and I'm not talking about your John Hughes pretty in pink kind of movies. Although John Hughes is fantastic, I'm talking about more gritty, the more gritty kind of stuff. Um, Mom and Dad, I gotta give it to you. You guys, you raised me with. You raised me to have really good taste in cinema. So thank you both for that. So yeah, I grew up watching a lot of movies from the 70s. And there's something about movies from the 70s and the early 80s that speak to me in a way that no other era of film has captured quite so consistently and so well. Um, movies in the seventies, again, the seventies were a time after trauma, a time coming out of severe trauma. I'm talking about the, uh, civil rights movement, as well as the Vietnam war is a very traumatic time for the United States and for many other places around the world. And one of the things that happened, one of the things that resulted is a lot of really gritty kind of movies. There were a lot of really gritty, hyper-realistic movies. Scorsese was in on that. That whole gang was in on it. Scorsese, of course, um, Fat Man who did Coppola. I'm talking about Francis Ford Coppola and... So many other filmmakers, they made these these really dark, gritty stories. You know, it's set in a city for the most part. You know, you're set in a city in New York and things are just real gritty and dark and hyper-realistic. The films were of that era captured a very hyper-realistic, or they, they exhibited hyper-realism. Uh, so a lot of really good acting was allowed to shine through. That's why you have, you know, that's why you've got Robert De Niro and Al Pacino. They got famous from that era because they were fortunate enough to be part of that camp of hyper-realism and they got to help develop acting, really good acting, very natural, naturalistic acting. And yeah, naturalism. A lot of filmmakers in the 70s were going for that. And I, I appreciate that. Uh, there's a certain honesty to it, and there's a certain subversiveness to it. A lot of the 70s movies weren't afraid to be subversive. And I mean truly subversive. There's a lot of subversive stuff, a lot of subversive content that is, movies, web series, TV shows today. Um, but it's very rare for anyone to catch the quality of subversion that so many films from the 1970s caught. And I'm talking about things weren't super polished. So, for example, the actors in the movies and like almost all of my favorite movies from the 70s the actors they're not all perfect and beautiful there's dudes with blemishes women with blemishes there's ugly people they don't have to be all stereotypical hollywood uh, golden veneer you know gold coat of paint perfect not everyone has to be conventionally beautiful in these movies. They're very real looking. I mean, shit, Jack Nicholson, he blew up in the 70s. That's when he got his, you know, that's when he got his nut. That's when he got his recognition in the 70s. Nicholson's, he's a handsome guy, but he's definitely not conventionally handsome. He's a good looking guy. He's got a great look. He is so himself. Jack Nicholson looks and behaves so Jack Nicholson. There's no one else like him. And he's not like anyone else. 
And it seemed like a lot of movies, uh, so per capita, you know, per capita, the percentage of movies that came out of America in the 70s that was really putting forward people who were not conventionally attractive, not conventionally perfect, didn't have a full head of hair, uh, weren't super fit and all this stuff. The 70s was like, you know, let's just show people as they are. You don't need makeup. You come in. You got bags under your eyes. You got a zit. Your hair's thinning. You look uh, you look a little overweight. You look a little underweight. You're probably stoned right now. Don't put Visine in your eyes. Come as you are. Because that's what I want to capture. Not the not the veneer you. Not the Hollywood ideal. Not the fake you. I want to see the real you, warts and all. I really appreciate that in any kind of art. Capturing a person, warts and all. Because I feel like that's love. That's real love right there, man. To accept a person, to appreciate a person for who they are, as they are, come as they are. Not having to pretty themselves up, not have to put on makeup. Just come as you are. Flawed. Kind of funky looking. Maybe funky smelling. Come as you are. Because I will accept you. It's not like I will accept you only if you do yourself up nice. No, it's saying I accept you as you are. uh, Flawed. Yeah, how many times can I say that? I accept you as you are, as you are. Come as you are, as you were, as I want you to be. So some of my favorite movies, Taxi Driver, uh, Apocalypse Now. There's, of course, the first two Godfathers. Um, Other movies that stick out that come to mind from that era, Nighthawks. That's a that's a fucking movie not everyone knows about. Oh, it's a, it's a good gritty movie though, Nighthawks. The French Connection. You want to talk about real naturalism? You want to talk about gritty hyperrealism? Watch The French Connection. Also, if you haven't seen The French Connection and if you're kind of into car chase scenes, watch The French Connection. The original the movie, The French Connection. It has hands down in my opinion the absolute best car chase scene in all movie and television history because it's so real it's so it's i mean it's not fast and furious they're not pulling off all sorts of crazy fantastical stunts they were doing the real 70s kind of thing i mean so bullet bullet's a great movie starring steve mcqueen great car chase movie Another gritty, crime, hyper-real kind of a story. Presentation, that is. But still, there's a lot of, like, kind of as really crazy, like, edging over the top car chase scenes. But it wasn't, you know, it wasn't gone in 60 seconds. Uh, the the remake with Nicolas Cage, uh, the best actor who ever lived. I'm saying that half tongue-in-cheek. Uh, <laughs> um, it's not super over the top and the car chase scene in the French Connection though it's not quite as over the top as Bullet it, it's it's painfully realistic and that makes it that much more intense because you, you're, you're there with Popeye I think that's the main character's name you're there with Popeye you're in the car you're trying to get through this crowd of people. You're running over fruit stands. It's intense. It makes it will make your ass pucker. It will make you more uncomfortable than any of the car chases in Fast and Furious in that franchise. Another prime example of a really real car chase scene is in the movie Ronin, starring 
Robert De Niro. Movie came out in the 90s. And uh, the guy who played Ned Stark in the Game of Thrones Game of Thrones TV series, he's in it. He plays a junkie. It's about mercenaries. They're all mercenaries. And there's a really fantastic car chase scene in that movie as well. So yeah, if you want some great car chases, watch uh watch The French Connection and then watch Ronin. I think from like 1996 or something, the latter. So yeah, what else? What else? What else? I did stand up. I told you I was going to do stand up and I was going to get guests. I got a guest. Um was going to have a guest for this episode, but a couple fell through due to weather. No problemo. It's all gravy, baby. Um, and I also said that I was going to do stand-up. I think I, I promised these things two episodes ago. Well, I've done two stand-up sets since then. I've done two open mics. I did one... Uh, not this week, but last week I did an open mic, three minutes at the Cherrywood Coffee House up in the, uh, I think it's the, uh, what's it called? The Hyde Park neighborhood in Austin. Yeah, I did three minutes there about a funny story involving a slightly traumatic event that somewhat relates or involves spongebob squarepants the movie to sponge out of water i got laughs i didn't expect that i and i kind of ran out of time that's the thing i keep running into so i did the open mic there and then this week uh on tuesday i did open mic at the fallout theater in downtown austin it's called the playpen so i got three minutes there and i told another story um, about the first play I saw in college, my first college production. Well, it wasn't a college production, but it was a play at the college, like the day before I started my first semester of undergrad. Uh, and I got some laughs on that too. So I, I was following some advice from the guy who I told you all, Aaron, who gave me the pep talk to get out and just do stand up. I took his advice and I recorded my first set. I didn't do it on the second set, uh, and that's okay. That's all right. I just need to not make a habit of that. But the first set, a Cherrywood Coffee House with the SpongeBob SquarePants story, I did record that on audio. I, you know, I have a voice recording app on my phone. And I recorded it, and I listened back to it, and I can see how I can tighten up the story because that's one of the challenges I'm facing right now is tightening up the set because I do an open mic, so I'm not going to get any more than three minutes. And I'm not much for just one line, crack a joke, crack a joke, crack a joke. I like to create a thing. I'm not in it just for the laughs. I don't need the laughs. What I need is the engagement. I want the audience to be engrossed. They don't necessarily need to be laughing. They need to be interested. So I want the audience's interest. That's what I'm about. And I want to make a shared thing happen. Make a connection. Um, and I want to do that in my own way and I'm figuring out how to do that in my own way because I'm actually doing it and I'm really proud that I did it. And also that voice recording, I also, with the SpongeBob bit, I got laughs that I didn't even realize I got. So that was uplifting as well. That was encouraging. But, um, yeah, one of the main reasons I wanted to do stand up to go to these open mics regularly i'm committed i'm doing at least one every week and i committed to it two weeks ago and so far i've done two because it's been two weeks one a week um 
I intend to start doing more, incrementally more. But for right now, I'm doing at least one a week, which is a huge leap because I was doing zero a week, zero a week for a long time, a long time. So now, over the span of the past seven years, I've done four stand-up sets total, open mics. The first one was when I first moved to Austin. The second one was last year at some point. And then three and four have been the past two weeks. And one of the reasons I'm committing to it now is because I want to get more comfortable with being looked at. Um, I want it to help with my acting because a lot of the problem that I find with acting, with my issue with acting is that I get nervous. I get nervous. I get uncomfortable being looked at. Um... And and I want to get past that. Sometimes I'm not always uncomfortable being looked at, but I want to be really comfortable. I want to put myself out there and, you know, doing stand-up is one of the most extreme ways. Doing stand-up and playing music live for people, Uh, especially a personal song. That is like some of the ultimate putting yourself out there. That's short of straight-up exhibitionism. Um, sexual exhibitionism and so yeah I want to just get real comfortable put myself in that difficult situation of being in front of people uh, all eyes on you uh, all potential uh, all attention on you and it's up to you to do something with that intention with that attention Your my intention is to get the people's interest, like I said. Uh, And it's helping so far. I just feel more calm. I feel good getting out of the house. I feel good getting to meet new people. I have more peace of mind because I feel like I'm doing something and I'm working towards something. And the amazing thing is once you start making a change like that in your life, I'm already seeing, uh, yeah, there's a lot of, you know, micro emotion stuff going on. Maybe I'm feeling more confident, so I'm getting more opportunities. But I also think that there's just sort of a an uncanny thing. When you start moving the ball on your own, you want to you want to move the ball some way in your life to get some to accomplish some kind of goal. You start moving the ball, you start the momentum, and then somehow uh other opportunities are just magnetically attracted to you as you get that ball moving. For years, I've been moving the ball, but in solitude, I've been writing so much. I wrote a fucking book, dude. I wrote a whole fucking 400 plus page book, bruh. Yeah. And that has helped me so much with the stand-up. Because the writing, I I learned how to write. And I'm still learning how to write. You're constantly discovering how to write if you're really committed to writing. You're constantly learning writing. Um, But what I've learned from writing so much over the past handful of years, uh, to such a huge extent, you know, writing a fucking 400 plus page book many times over, several revisions... That taught me how to write, it taught me how to read, taught me how to listen, and that has, I feel, given me a big advantage with coming up with material and thinking on my feet on a stage in front of people with a microphone in hand. Uh, It's helping with stand-up because essentially, you know, it all comes from writing. And even if you're just improvising something off the top of your head in front of these people, even if you're just improvising, the fact that you've already learned so much from writing, it helps you write in your mind, even if you're not really thinking about it. Just good writing. If you practice good writing and you and you practice good reading and listening and learning, just being getting better at writing makes you better at just blurting good stuff out. I don't feel like I'm doing that great of a job right now, but it's a little bit later. I feel like earlier today I had so much 
stuff going on. I was like, ooh, I can talk about this in this episode, and I can talk about this point and all this. And now I just feel like I'm kind of rambling through. The day grew late uh, for good reason, because I was hanging out with Emily. We had most of the day off, and I wanted to hang out and spend it with her. Plus, I just kind of ate and slept. It's been dark all day. Dark, rainy, and cool. And that's a perfect time to just, you know, take naps. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I've done stand-up, and I can... I, I intend to keep doing it. And right now it's like I'm feeling better. I feel like I'm getting out and doing something that, uh, yeah, I just feel good. I feel like I'm accomplishing something instead of just sitting around waiting for the world to happen. And it seems like that is, well, uh, it's making my days better and also seems to be attracting more opportunities because all of a sudden, out of nowhere, I'm getting like all these different kind of auditions and stuff, which is cool. More auditions than I had been getting. Maybe I'm just applying some kind of um, correlation between the fact that I'm feeling more confident and getting the ball rolling with stand-up. Maybe I'm applying some kind of correlation between that and the fact that I've been getting more auditions than usual lately and have been auditioning better but I think it's related somehow and I think a lot of it just has to do with feeling confident and comfortable another thing that has had me feeling more comfortable this past week is that I have I've stopped drinking coffee I've stopped drinking coffee several times before and I've done it again this week and dude I think I'm just allergic. Like, I don't break out in hives. I don't swell up. Actually, I think I do. My stomach, I believe, gets some inflammation from drinking coffee, which really sucks because I fucking love coffee. I love the smell. I love the taste. I love the look. But coffee doesn't love me so much. It makes me just so hypertense it creates so much hypertension in my body that i just feel on edge all day and it just fucks my stomach gurgles and i just i get shaky and irritable and just crazy and i don't like it it's not necessarily the caffeine um not necessarily the caffeine although too much caffeine will have a similar effect but i think i'm just super hypersensitive to whatever is in coffee other than just the caffeine. I think I might be just hypersensitive to coffee as a whole because I drink tea, I drink yerba mate, and I feel fine. So so yeah, I, I keep drinking tea. I always drink tea anyway. And that helps me with my caffeine fix, yerba mate, green tea. Um, and another thing is I've been drinking a lot of water. I've been drinking consciously so much water and that's had me feeling really good too. Like if I start feeling a little off, I start feeling a little anxious or something. If I catch my mind wandering off, spiraling out and it's negative habit that it has, I'll be like, okay, uh, I don't like that path I'm going down. Maybe I just need some water. So I'll drink some water, like a glass of water. And what do you know? I drink the water and I feel better. And I think it's probably got something to do with just my hydration. And maybe I get dehydrated a little quicker than other people because I've got a pretty high metabolism. So maybe that applies to the liquids as well. I don't know. If you know, let me know. Send me an email at thatthingwithjames at gmail.com. And also, uh, while you're at it, why not check out my Instagram and Twitter accounts? You can My handle is at James J. Asher. You can also visit my website, jamesjasher.com. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I'm wrapping it up. It's SNL time, and I'm getting bored with this episode. Uh, also, also uh, what was I going to say? Again, if you want to help support the show... So I can make more and better content. Um, you're welcome to 
become a patron at my Patreon, www.patreon.com slash that thing with James. All of these things will be in the description for the video and the audio. Also, if you're watching this video on YouTube, uh, please do subscribe. Hit the subscribe button uh, for my channel and be sure to like and comment the videos if you do indeed like and comment the videos and want to subscribe help a brother out and i'll try to help you out by keeping you interested and entertained and super happy high energy okay folks time to go watch some maybe funny maybe awful sketch comedy time for my saturday ritual of watching snl i love you all Bye-bye.